A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Medicine Path Podcast is an ongoing exploration into the intersections of spirituality, depth psychology, and psychedelics. The Medicine Path is a wholly independent and listener-supported project, so please consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash medicine path, or by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. You can find out more information at medicinepathpodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Brian James. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On today's episode, I welcome back Jungian therapist and shamanic practitioner C. Michael Smith, who is the founder of Crow's Nest Shamanism and the author of Jung and Shamanism in Dialogue. In this conversation, we look at the topic of shadow work from both the Jungian and shamanic viewpoints and offer some personal examples of how the shadow shows up in our relationships, the realm of spirituality and personal development, and in the culture at large. I really enjoyed my first conversation with Michael and wanted to have him back to offer his perspective on some important topics that come up in personal development and shamanic work. He does a great job of bridging the psychological and shamanic perspectives and has a lot of experience walking in both worlds, which makes him quite unique as a Jungian and as a shamanic practitioner. If you're not already familiar with Michael, I recommend that you go back and listen to that first episode if you'd like to know more about his background and work. Before we get to our conversation, I want to take a moment to tell you about a new online workshop that I've just made available for purchase. Last week, I ventured into new territory and offered my first live online workshop on shamanic breathwork for self-healing and self-care. I was a little unsure whether I'd enjoy teaching online, but with everything going on in the world, it seems to be the only way I'm going to get to do what I really love to do, 
which is share some of the practices that have enriched and benefited my life. It's now been about a year and a half since I taught my last live in-person yoga class and I really miss it. So I pushed through some initial resistance to the idea and delivered the workshop over two days. And I have to say that I really, really enjoyed it. It was great to connect with new and old friends from all over the world and share some of the ideas that I have about the connection between yoga and shamanism and pair it with what I think are the most effective breathwork techniques for self-healing and self-care. I've edited together the videos from those two days and have made them available on my Vimeo page, which you can find by visiting vimeo.com forward slash on demand forward slash shamanic breathwork. I know it's a long URL, so I'll post it in the description below. You can also find a link on my website at brianjames.ca or in my Instagram bio at revealing the soul. I'm so encouraged that I'm already planning a second workshop where we go a little deeper into some of the techniques I presented in the first workshop. And I've been considering opening up a monthly video call where we can gather to practice, share our experiences, and ask any questions that come up. So let me know if that's something that you'd be interested in and I can add you to the mailing list. You can email me at hello at brianjames.ca or reach out on Instagram. Okay, that's all for now. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with C. Michael Smith on The Medicine Path. I'm here once again with C. Michael Smith. Michael, thanks again for joining me for another session. Looking forward to it. Ryan, it's a pleasure. I love being here with you. Great. Well, I thought it'd be helpful uh, for the listener to get an idea of why I wanted to have another conversation with you. Um, so people who have been listening to me, who know my work, know that I've spent many years looking at the correlations between uh, the yogic tradition and the shamanic traditions that I've participated in, and I found a lot of similarities in the approach to healing in both of those traditions, and they're both very practice-oriented. Um, any kind of ideas around what trauma is, what healing is, uh, there are almost mythologies or stories, which I find really engaging and they really help me to understand what's going on when I actually engage in the practices themselves. But along the way, as I started to see changes within myself and in other people, um, I guess, you know, I think of it as kind of a hang up of my Western mind that still wanted to understand why or how these practices were affecting the psychological changes that I was witnessing and experiencing. And so I started to explore different modes of uh, psychotherapy, different viewpoints on psychology. And it really wasn't until I encountered depth psychology and Jung's work that uh, I found a psychological perspective that didn't require me to leave my imagination and my mystical shamanic experiences at the door. 
In fact, what I found was that uh, from a depth psychological perspective, it's actually your imagination that opens the door to the deep psyche. Um, so that was really affirming to me. And it led me to explore more and looking for people who had an understanding of both of those ways of viewing the world, the psychological and the shamanic. And I, I got to say, uh, there's not too many Jung, Jungians or depth psychologists who have engaged in shamanic practice to the extent that you have. So when we had our first chat, I don't know, a few months ago, whenever it was, I just felt a real affinity uh, and uh, really enjoyed how you're able to bridge those two worlds. And so I wanted to explore some other topics that come up quite a lot in the world of healing and transformation and personal development and to take a look at them through both of these lenses and maybe find ways that they actually are telling the same story, but in different ways, right? So a topic that comes up all the time in, uh, in this world of healing and self-development is shadow work. And I know it comes up a lot in my practice. I see it a lot on social media. People are really interested in this thing called shadow work. So I thought that would be a great topic to dive into with you. And maybe the best place to begin is to uh, talk about Jung's concept of the shadow, because I think he was the one who actually coined the term, the shadow. So mm -hmm. I wonder if you could start there with uh, Jung's idea and then add anything that you've come to in your own experience. Okay, I'll do my best on that. Now, okay, the shadow is essentially the vast realm of the psyche that is opposite of the persona, which is your social presentation in the world. That's the most concise statement. Another would be um, that uh, the persona is the face you wear and uh, the shadow is the backside of your head, which you can't see, <laughs> no matter where you turn. Okay. And uh, we tend to get identified with the front side, the face that we show to ourselves and that we show to the world. Now, the persona should say something about that since uh, its opposite is to find a shadow. So the persona comes into being through our social conditioning, primarily the childhood domestication. And that's where we're uh, at a certain age, around four or five, when we're really not only able to speak language and understand our parents, but we're downloading their rules, okay, uh, about everything. Uh, and we're getting rewarded uh, in some way when we... Um, live and act by those rules and we get punished uh, when we don't. And so naturally we want the reward and want to avoid the punishment. So most of us learn to fit in with what the parents want. So we want to be part of the family. And later we want to fit in with our peers and at school, the teachers and what they're downloading into us. Okay. So we're forming our social selves which is really not just a persona. The persona is an archetype. You have many masks showing up. So, uh, but it, they're the ones that the social world says, 
that one's okay, that one's good, that works here. No, we don't like that one. And whatever they don't like, that goes back, it gets repressed, sometimes dissociated, back into what Jung called the shadow. Okay. Yeah, I wonder if we could just pause there and um, maybe help to um, do a little distinguishing between the ego and the persona, because I know that Jung distinguished between the two, but I think in kind of... um, in like pop psychology maybe or in people's general understanding they get conflated that uh persona and ego are the same but i I think there's a distinction right yes uh the word ego really comes from the greek not the latin it's ego in latin but it's ego ego in uh in greek Uh, it is a um i am statement so it's the part of us that uh uh has the persona and the part unbeknownst has the shadow so the ego is what's kind of in between those and able uh to identify with the persona and in time is able to work with the shadow but it uh is the uh standpoint we take as conscious beings, uh, and Jung called it a complex, which is very interesting, because a complex has many parts. And the many parts would be uh, like subpersonalities, little uh, mechanisms and habits of mind. Uh, so you can have a strong and integrated ego, or you can have one that's kind of fragmented, or you can have one that's uh, pretty poorly developed, you know. So when Jungians or any when Jungians or depth psychologists talk about ego, they don't mean the spiritual ego of yoga or Buddhism or Hinduism. Okay, we're talking about the, the capacity to focus attention and reality test it has nothing to do with what Jung would call the shadow qualities of greed, malice, avarice, desire, hatred, fear, clinging, grasping, envy. You know those go those are Jung's shadow and not the ego. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay yeah it's interesting um like in yoga there's no correlate term for ego uh, but there is something called ahamkara which is the eye maker which i guess is the drive to create a sense of self in order to make your way through the world yeah yeah i feel the young had an awareness of that you know and uh he wrote quite a bit on yoga Quite, mm-hmm. quite a few essays and uh, you know he was looking at that pretty carefully and I think in part that's behind his wanting to insist that it's a complex and not a singular thing it's not some permanent possession that you're already in and right. it's a form right it's it's the form consciousness takes at the moment <clears throat> yeah and, and not something to be done away with but something to be maybe educated matured developed that kind of thing just to be um healthier and and more authentic in the way that we then present the different personas to the world something like that Mm -hmm. so much of the information that the child takes in and digests serves the ego so if uh, the parents believe in jesus christ as their savior if they believe in santa claus uh, whatever they believe in, you know, becomes part of the reality that the ego of the child 
references all the time. That's reality. So the ego is not very expanded there, you know, but at a later stage, it can move beyond that and realize, oh, that was just one point of view, rather limited, as a matter of fact, uh, and extends. And certainly for young to individuate and become whole, you have to ex- increase this thing that way, extend it. It's interesting, those two examples you gave of uh, Jesus Christ and Santa Claus, they're both based on a reward <clears throat> system. If you're a good boy, you'll go to heaven. If you're a good boy, you'll get uh, presents under the tree this year. Yeah, yeah, right. And the punishment system, like in Catholicism, the uh, sacrament of penance is really the confession, going to the confessional. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. <laughs> you know, okay, how many times you masturbate this week? <laughs> you tell them, you, you get these little punishments you have to endure in order to be right with God again. And this, of course, keeps the shadow uh, intact, you know, and strong uh, as a negative force because it's never uh, dealt with and owned. You're just punished for having shadow urges come up, you know, or acting out some shadow, but never let's go in there and work with this and see what we can do with that energy. Yeah. So in the... um the putting of different aspects of ourselves, the different drives and instincts and urges into the shadow. Does this lead to what uh, we might call in a shamanic understanding as soul loss? Is that what we're talking about here? I would say uh, some of that would be soul loss. Some of that would be, uh, just blockage of energy, you know, but of course that fuels the soul. So you could look at it the way you said, um, but I reserve uh, that word for a more dissociative kind of phenomena where uh, a part of the ego, uh, again called a complex, a pathological complex, a part that is suffering and it's lodged in a memory it can't get out of. And that memory is hell, you know, for it. And so to get that out, because you can, uh, shamanically, you can uh, cleanse and purge the dark energies, the negative emotions, and so on, and uh, actually bring in uh, uh, the right kind of energies, which also belong to the individual, you know. But there's often energies taken on from another, you know, say an abuser or a harsh parent or something like that, and those are given back, those are released. So we make that distinction in the shamanic idiom between those energies and the soul part that gets lost or disconnected or projected or somewhere put in the other worlds. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting that, uh, you know, I think in most of the shamanic traditions that I've experienced, they never talk uh, psychologically about these things. Um They've never really been interested in like origin stories, knowing the trauma story, but it's more about just, okay, let's get down to unblocking that energy. And through the releasing of that painful energy, uh, we can then reclaim that lost part of ourselves. But you have to go through that, uh, the pain to get to the lost soul part, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. 
I would like to say some other things about the shadow. Yeah, uh, please. Before we go further into that to give us a framework. Mm -hmm. But uh, I would say the, you know, there's a personal shadow and there's a collective and then an archetypal shadow. So I'd like to distinguish those. So the definition of the shadow would be, you know, what uh, lives in exile and is rejected. It's unworthy or uh, it's frightening. So we don't want it. Uh, it'll get us into trouble because it's the parts that didn't fit in that were unwanted, let's say, as we're growing and developing into a social being. And uh, it's also the traumatized and wounded parts. And uh, the strength of the, the, those wounds vary from person to person. And I remember Eckhart Tolle formulating the pain body. That's that part of the shadow that holds the trauma. And uh, you can have a very dense um, uh, pain body, he says, if you've had a lot of trauma or if you come out of a social group, uh, a culture that's had a lot of trauma, lots of warfare and, or starvation and what have you, uh, the collective trauma, uh, it's embedded in your own pain body, you know, so it's especially dense. You inherit that from your ancestors and your, your fellow uh, members of the society. And uh, then there's an archetypal level. And uh, the easiest way to explain what that is, is if you think of uh, the foundational archetypes, I have my version of Robert Moore's, you know, the king, warrior, magician, and lover. But the king in his glory would be like, um, say, King David, a king that, you know, has a special relationship with the divine, prays bless for blessings on the people and that he might rule wisely and this sort of thing. And so that's at the top of the pyramid or the top of the archetype. And at the bottom, you have the uh, high chair tyrant, you know, uh, the narcissist who just uh, only cares about himself and going to do whatever he wants to do because he can't because he says so. Uh, so that's an example of the negative pull of an archetype. And you can do that with all of the lover, uh, you know, at, at, at its very uh, lowest level of vibration would be like an addict, you know, and uh, a magician at its lower levels of vibration would be like a sorcerer, a kind of a shamanic figure who has talents and gifts, but who uses them for egoic purposes or to make money or, you know, um, like a prostitute uh, in the shaman's uniform, you know, mm. and, uh, and then the warrior, um, you have these, uh, kinds of warriors that run amok with uh, violence and rape and mayhem and this sort of thing. So they've degenerated from or, or never made it to that level of which they're a protector or a defender or in service of the kingdom or the people. Uh, they're operating on a much more primitive, uh, selfish level, narcissistic level. So that's the archetypal shadow and they can all come into play at the same time and i think in uh, 2020 and 2021 we felt <laughs> the coalescence of all these shadow forces on the planet you know yeah and, and affecting bring, the planet with them yeah and i think bringing out everybody's individual shadow parts to be played out on social media within the family um yeah 
it's everywhere these days, which I think is why yeah. it's become such a hot topic. So the question is, like, right. what, what do we do with this? You know, how do we do this shadow work? Yeah. The shadow work is not easy, you know, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I wasn't sure if you're ready to get into um, maybe some practices and approaches to working with shadow, or if you had more to say about the personal archetypal collective. Now, when we talk about collective, um, you're talking about uh, cultural, national, family, not necessarily the collective unconscious, right? Would that be more the archetypal right. realm? I, right. That would be the archetypal realm. I'm talking there about the social collective. So the, uh, just take the United States, which I live in. Um, so we've seen all this outbreaking of uh, racism and hatred and violence, gun violence and what have you. And around politics, uh, we have Republicans and Democrats and uh, families fighting. They're cut right down the middle on who should be president and that sort of thing. And it's really ruptured families, been ruining, destroying families. And, uh, you know, they're projecting their shadow on each other uh, and judging each other. And that's happening all over the nation. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's not just limited to the United States, but that's what we've been dealing with for the past six years. So that's a good example of the psychic contagion uh, that happens uh, when the uh, density of the uh, collective shadow of a nation gets very intense. It can just explode into mass psychosis. Hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, how the shadow um, plays out in our lives individually and collectively. So the phenomenon of projection. Um, why, why are we always projecting our, our shadow, the unacceptable, unwanted parts of ourselves? Why do we do that? Why does it happen as a phenomenon? Well, I think we're always looking for a solution to our problems. Uh, externally. We, we want somebody out there uh, to give us what we want, to bring us what we want, to solve our problems, this sort of thing. So we're projecting automatically what we're not owning in our own shadow. So we're projecting the savior or the guru or the healer that will do the work for us, this sort of thing. And when they don't, or uh, when they disappoint us, then uh, we project our contempt, our judgment, our malice, even hatred sometimes, you know, and disillusionment. So it's what lives in the shadow gets projected because it's been repressed or dissociated. It doesn't stop existing. Okay. It's just pulled out of the awareness of that ego we were talking about. Okay. But uh, it's still living, not well, but it's living in this uh, world of shadows somewhere in the realm, the other world, if you would use the shamanic idiom. And, uh, the repressed returns. And uh, that's one way it returns. It can return in symptoms and outbreaks too, but uh, it returns in the form of projection, idealization and de-idealization. Mm. Yeah, I, I love the image that you started out with is the persona being the mask that we wear in the front, you know, front facing and the shadow being like the back of the head. And uh, the image that comes to me is... Uh, how if I'm looking at a mirror, 
I, I'll never be able to see the back of my head with one mirror. I can only see my face because that's where my eyes are. Uh, but to <laughs> see the back of my head, I actually need two mirrors. I need to have like one behind me and one in front reflecting back. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think about how it's really hard to do shadow work on your own in an isolated bubble. Um, you can just kind of stay in projection and keep uh, reaffirming that and justifying that to yourself all day long. But it's not until you get into relationship uh, where you get that reflection, the true reflection of the parts you can't see, uh, whether that's with a therapist or a, a, um, a compassionate, hopefully lover, or even a lover who's not so compassionate, who's just really putting your face in it. Yeah, does that sound, I mean, that's interesting to me, just that image of the back of the head and how we kind of need another mirror in order to see it. What do you think about that? Yeah, this whole thing of mirroring is very interesting. Uh, there's a, a form of use of a mirror I do for soul retrieval, so I don't want to forget that. I'll come back to that in a bit. But um, so... Uh, in Mexico, the Toltec and Mexica cultures, that's Aztec, uh, in particular, were big on the smoky mirror, the idea of like an obsidian mirror, you know, which you can't see into very clearly, but you can see yourself. But uh, if you stare at it, it distorts, changes shape, and you start seeing stuff that you may then react as, that's fascinating or that's terrifying. And if it's terrifying, go into that and explore it. So you could work, and I do that. You could work with uh, that alone, but I don't think most people can start there because without somebody to keep you company while you have these initial, like first encounters with your own shadow, uh, that can be terrifying and you might just shut down and slam the door shut and never go back. Okay, because what's waiting for you on the other side is a big harsh judge who's going to shame you for all the unsavory things you're carrying inside the shadow. It's too painful, too humiliating to look at, you know. Mm. Whereas if you're in a relationship, whether it's with a therapist or a healer, or even a, like if you have a really conscious lover, you know, where you can open up, then you can have good mirroring going on. It's metaphoric mirroring, you know. Mm -hmm. It says, you're talking about things I can't even see. Suddenly I can see them in some sense, some metaphoric sense. I start to get the picture of what you're struggling with or working with, you know, and how you suffer and why you suffer. And I may even get an intuition as to a move you can make to, to help you out of that impasse, you know. Mm. But for me, it all comes down to establishing a relationship with something in the shadow, whatever's there, what's coming up. And a relationship must be respectful. Uh, so often the judges, in there so fast that that's you're not being respectful because the judge has hijacked you and it's taking over and just making you thoroughly disgusted with yourself yeah oh that really <laughs> rings true to me um i'd never thought of it that way before though but uh the judge almost being like a gatekeeper to the rest of the shadow material. And you got to yeah. kind of face that judge first. So when you meet that judge and we've all heard that voice in our head, when we see something that's shameful about ourselves, something we're not, you know, happy with that we don't want to identify as, uh, you know, and just 
you know, we could make a list right now. But mm. when we encounter that judge that's shaming us for that behavior, for that thought, that urge, um, what's a good way to engage with that? Um, I'm, I'm guessing it's not some kind of like shamanic imaginal duel where we want to slay the judge, right? I think that's a mistake. You know, people take that tack. Um, uh, but you're still going against yourself if you do that. So uh, one thing Jung said about the ego is that it emerges from the unconscious. It's born from the unconscious. And the judge is, in fact, a part of that complex he called the ego that is the gatekeeper. So the judge is really concerned that you survive in the social world. So, um, unless you enter into a creative relationship with it, it's going to operate the way it was needed to operate when you were developing and being conditioned. So it's holding you to a standard by which you can survive in the social world. And it doesn't want you to have anything to do with what's been repressed and shoved down. It wants it to stay down. Okay. So you got to have a conversation with the judge and say something like, what are you so scared of? I'm curious. You know, don't come at it hostily. Come at it like a psychoanalyst. It's, you know, what's floating your boat here? Why are you doing this? And it's going to have a monologue, you know, um, because if you do that, you'll hurt somebody, you'll get sued, you'll, you'll go to jail, your reputation will be destroyed. In other words, all those fantasies uh, are circulating around your humiliation and social uh, punishment. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. Right. So you got to say, you know, but that was true when I was a child. I had to learn to fit in, but I can do that now. In fact, I would like to not fit in anymore. I'd like to be... Uh, creative, uh, help out, make the, the social order a better social order, you know? So could you collaborate with me on that project and hold me to that standard of bringing some deeper truths to the world, of being a more authentic person? Now, the first conversation, I mean, it may take a dozen conversations, but that's how you work it out with the manager, you, you turn it from your demon into your daimon or into your ally. Mm -hmm. But you're only gonna do that if you're loving and respectful towards it. It's radical acceptance of anything that comes up. Yeah, and I think, yeah, what it starts with is that understanding that that inner judge was there to protect you when you were young. And like, I think Donald Kulshed talked about it as the protector that turns into persecutor later in life once it's yeah. uh, once its yes. function has uh, um, played itself out mm -hmm. yeah it, it's interesting too like when, when we're talking about the judge I think about um, how I think sh the shadow comes forward most often is in judgment of others and and so if like the judges are kind of gatekeeper to the shadow work, maybe the first place to start looking is where we're judging other people. Absolutely. That's the easiest mirror to find because you don't have to, you don't start by looking at yourself, you know, uh, but where everybody, wherever somebody is like uh, annoying you, irritating you, making you agitate or rattle, there's a clue right there. There's the mirror is saying you've got some shadow material. Okay. That other person may have it too, but you know, MYOB, mind your own business, your work is to deal with yours, you know. 
Um, so uh, then you can go in and find that part of you that's just like this part you can't stand on the other person. And you've got some rich material and you have to approach it in the same manner with respect, willing to be curious and to invite it to talk with you and eventually collaborate with you. So it loses its density and stops going against you and you become allies. You can collaborate together on something. And most of the shadow contents can be worked with in this way. There are some things that you can't allow to circulate, uh, act them out or social, in the social world, okay? Because they would be damaging or destructive. Mm. You, know, you can think of a good movie, every, everything from ancestral feelings to addictive tendencies to violent feelings. You know, you've got to find another way to express those, but you've got to keep them out of circulation. That's the ethical relationship to the shadow. Notice I didn't say moral, because moral is, is good or bad. But ethical is like, what is my responsibility here? You know? So there's a way to radically accept even the unacceptable, you know, the, the intolerable thing that you think or feel or want to do. And you can say, you have a yes and a no. You can say no to it, not in this way. That's mm. not going to happen. But you have to be in a centered place to do that and in a loving place so let's figure out another way we can we can turn this into art or poetry or interesting dance movements uh, we can do a psychodrama we can sculpture you know so you, you kind of give give it ideas like you would a child you're working with you know here's here's some options you know so you still keep the love going with the part even though uh, uh, it's embarrassing and humiliating to acknowledge that you have this part that wants to do this thing, you know, and you know, it's not going to go away easily. So this is the kind of part you've got to keep out of circulation. You can do it without repressing it. You mm. just use your free will, which is your yes and your no. And you say, no, not that way. But yeah, we can do it this way. You know, we can yeah. honor it this way. Yeah, like you're saying, you have to be in a creative relationship with the shadow. Um, yeah. And that's what it takes, yeah. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people, when they get into healing work, there's some idealized <coughs> notion that at some point they're going to eradicate all of these monstrous demonic parts of themselves that they're going to be able to purify themselves enough that they're not going to have those kind of lustful thoughts when they're walking down the street and they're not going to need to look at pornography anymore as just one example that comes up a lot in men's work. Um, mm -hmm. Now, my sense is that that's not realistic and that we have to have uh, some good warrior energy online to create boundaries around that part. Um, let it exist, but do it, like you said, in a very controlled and ethical way. Now, in your experience, is there any doing away with these most unwanted parts of ourselves? There are people that claim to have done that, but I'm skeptical, you know. Um, I, I know one human where I kind of believe that, okay. But, uh, you know, in addition to being a psychologist, I'm a medical anthropologist, and I've, I've worked in 
different indigenous uh, cultures and uh, always studying the healing system so I can compare them across cultures and see what I can learn from them too. And uh, I've studied with some of the very best, but I've been disappointed over and over again when I idealized them and I expected them to be able to uh, be in such self-control that uh, they would not act out destructively. But I've never found that not to be the case. And uh, in 2016, after five years working in the Amazon, a Peruvian Amazon, uh, and getting really to know the shamanic situation there, the plant-based shamanism, uh, uh, I was outraged by discovering over and over again that uh, these uh, shamans or curanderos were uh, sexually exploiting their patients, usually of uh, American or European origin. You know, the, the Latinas know how to deal with the cat calls. It's, it's a power play, they, they play it, but the, the American, the I don't know, Canadian, the British, the Australians that come, but also the French, the Germans, the Dutch that have come down there, they are particularly vulnerable to the uh, ex sexual exploitation. And uh, I confronted this one guy that I'd worked with, and when I saw what he was doing, um, I, I stopped him. But I said, you, 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 you just can't treat people this way. They're doing ayahuasca. They're vulnerable. They're in a hypnotic state. And you're making gestures and planning sexual suggestions. I see, because women were reporting it to me. Okay, and then that's not okay. And he said, "Well, I'm a Latino, you know." And he just rationalized it. I said, "That's not good enough. You're doing harm to people. You're proposing as a healer, but you're doing harm to people." Now, I don't say I'm any better than him. I have the same type of desires as any other man. Okay, but I also have my yes and no. And I know when people come to me, they're in pain. They have their own reasons, okay? So what they want is to heal or transform. They're not really asking for that. And it would probably be damaging in most cases for the healer to get sexually involved with the patient. And uh, so in 2016, uh, I'm part of this conference with Graham Hancock and uh, Dennis McKenna Jan Koonin, uh, Howard Charing, uh, a bunch of people that know the North Amazon well. Okay, so in the totality of us, we've all been working that field for something like 20 years, back into the 1990s, actually. Okay, so, and we've met a lot of shamans. So I says, is any one of you, this is at breakfast one morning, we're all sitting together. <clears throat> so any one of you can tell me you've met one male shaman that has not exploited his patient sexually. And I was surprised not one of them can say that. It was enlightening for all of us. And we agreed this is a problem, okay? Yeah. But I mean, you can have that anywhere. I'm not picking on Peruvians by any means, mm -hmm. okay? There are just um, uh, certain people that fly under the banner of healer or shaman or psychotherapist, okay? 
that uh, are so not in relationship to their own shadow that that thing just kind of hijacks and exploits. They let it into circulation. Yeah, and and even find ways to to justify it, like um, in service to sexual healing, that that kind of thing. (laughs) Right, right, right. You know, I've seen uh, my fair share of that in the yoga world too, and I'm reminded of – that old saying, I don't know who said it, but it's like the brighter the light, the longer the shadow. And especially in something like uh, yoga or other spiritual systems where there is this idea that you can purify yourself, that you can eradicate your shadow urges. Um, that tends to me, in my experience, just to repress things even further and to build up the persona. Um, yeah, I, th- I think the... If there's a moral imperative, it's to come into relationship with these forces rather than rationalize or justify them. Uh, where is your free will in these situations? Mm-hmm. You know, and how conscious are you? Are you just allowing a part of you? I mean, you could think of every part, every energy in you is like a daimon. Okay. It's an urge to life, an urge to express itself. Mm. But do all of them have equal claim in every situation to do their thing? Mm-hmm. Of course, so, I so, think, no, they no, they don't. Yeah, well, they think they do, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and so, yeah, the role of the healthy ego is um, to be some kind of manager of all the parts and be the one who decides uh, what is right and what is wrong, or what's the yes and the no in any given situation. Like, what's appropriate? What's my responsibility? Those kind of things. Yeah. Well, I would uh, say this differently because mm-hmm. uh, managers can be allies and a manager could uh, help steer a person away from acting out, you know, putting something into social circulation. That's true. Um, but the best source from that is your own higher self, you know, or your own deep center, your own divinity, just being in that, you know, where there's. Uh, centeredness, coherence, compassion, energy, let that consciousness make the decisions, you know. The ego is its servant, you know. Sometimes I like to drop that word ego and just say an aware eye that knows what it is, you know, as uh, uh, part of the divine, just like you're part of the divine, you know. And therefore, it has uh, clarity, compassion, courage, creativity, connectivity, all these things that you need uh, to make um, life-affirming, love-affirming, love-based choices. Yeah, uh, yeah, I like that. I've been th- I think about it as uh, an educated ego and the ego taking education from the higher self or the heart yeah. and uh, yeah, being servant too. Um, you know, when you're talking about that whole dynamic that plays out in uh, plant medicine, shamanism, you know, whether it's happening in Peru or it's happening up in North America with uh, like gringo shaman and all that, mm-hmm. uh, there's an aspect of that that we can see is purely the shadow, right? So the person gets inflated with their own sense of power and entitlement and they allow 
their urges to play out uh, in really inappropriate situations. So we can really see that. That's like some dark shadow stuff that's playing out. But the other aspect of it that um, I think makes gringos susceptible to that kind of manipulation and power play is the projection of, uh, you know, I think what's sometimes called the golden shadow onto the healer. So that aspect of yourself, like your own inner healer, the healing capacity in you, the inner wisdom in you, um, projecting that onto the guru or the shaman or the teacher, the psychotherapist. Could you talk a little bit about that, how there's more than just the dark, nasty stuff in the shadow? Yeah, but I, first I want to say there's also the unwounded, the wounded parts, the unhealed wounded parts of the healer that play a role in this. So that's also in the shadow. Okay, so if I don't know my own value, I will look for self-esteem outwardly. If I don't see myself and know what's of value about me, I'm going to want it from other people. Right. So, okay. yeah, just let me follow this. So the, 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 let's say the bad shaman, to characterize it that way, is not only looking for sexual gratification, but could also be looking just to feel loved by a, a woman. So that wounded part of himself could just be looking for love and affection, admiration. That's exactly my point. Exactly. Because... Uh, the acting out healer has not healed themselves. They are likely uh, to act from the more negative pole, <laughs> you know, and express the more immature forms of themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's the gold projecting onto them. What does that do? That sounds like, oh, I'm so wonderful and important. Look how these people honor me, worship me, this sort of thing. And that's a real trap for a teacher. And anybody that's in a position of social power, that projection on can easily be exploited, but it's going to be exploited from their own wounded parts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's intoxicating. Even the narcissist. Yeah, yeah. Especially oh, the it's, narcissist. It's, like a, <laughs> it's an exit from the suffering. They don't have to deal with their own suffering because they're being made to feel better by uh, the inauthentic praise and glory they're getting from people projecting onto them. Yeah. So it's like a hustle. They haven't really done their work or they haven't completed their work. Let's put it that way. Because there can be very gifted healers that haven't done enough work on themselves. It's not enough to have a great intuition, great empathy, uh, and know a lot of powerful techniques. You know, if you haven't done the work on yourself, really deeply there is a considerable risk that you will act out in harmful ways through the power that's given to you socially yeah like even with the best intentions you could end up harming more than healing um so yeah. could you talk a little bit more about the piece of from the um the patient let's say from their position the projection of their golden shadow so how can I, as someone who's engaging in therapy, any kind of healing modality, uh, how can I make sure that I'm not doing that? And how can I protect myself from a shaman so that I, I receive the best of the shaman and am not uh, susceptible to their own shadow play? 
You follow me? Yeah. Because like we've been talking about how to become aware of your kind of your negative shadow, like, oh, it comes to, through my judgments and, you know, my derision of other people and all of that, or my shaming of myself. Mm-hmm. What about that golden shadow? How do we become aware that yeah. that's, that's projection is happening? Well, <laughs> that's a complicated uh question and i think there's different approaches but they all have to pass through working with the darkness you're right the greater part of the psyche is in the shadow in classical jungian analysis uh, there's a little time spent getting oriented to the client and to their persona field okay to see if they're identified with it help them uh, suspect there's much more to them than what they're identified with and then you start doing the shadow work which is the opposite side right so uh, what's going to come up in the shadow work initially is going to tend to be dark. They're afraid of it. They've been repressing it. You know? <laughs> so uh, it's hard to get to the gold. And Jung really believed you couldn't really get to it, except in some uh, inflated psychotic way, if you didn't do some work on the dense, dark stuff. Mm. So as you do that, you establish a relationship with the sh- parts in your shadow Suddenly, you have a skill set that you can then move on and start connecting with your contrasexual other. Jung, Jung called it the anima and the animus. I prefer to call it eros and logos in this day of LGBTQ, you know, the alphabet. Um, because uh, I, I think calling it the inner feminine or the inner masculine uh, is very tricky today and what we know today. It's more coming out of the Victorian era, yeah. that, that concept. But there's something there he was pointed to, like yang and yin, you know, this polarity. So the opposite of whatever your orientation is, is what's going to show up, you know, because it's the underserved, underdeveloped. So when that starts to happen, you're coming into touch with the gold. But not only that, because Jung would say the anima, anima sets the bridge to the self with the big asses, you know. So uh, the way into the, the uh, heights and depths of the psyche, it passes through this dark underworld passage of you know, the dense uh, energies. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with Jung on that point because I, I studied with uh, Don Alberto, I don't have to say his whole name, but, you know, in uh, uh, Ecuador. And uh, he was like, a, his way is Kishwa, Taitayachik, earth honoring. It's, it was like a Zen experience, you know, where you're sensuously opening your heart and attuning to every living being. And on multiple levels, really beautiful. But uh, I never got tools from him, besides beautiful ceremonies, to really engage the shadow. Okay. His way was just, you know, open your heart, keep mm-hmm. living from that, you yeah. know, and that'll burn up a lot of that shadow stuff. And if there is something to work on, then you can do a special clearing. Uh, at, at least as a modern Westerner white guy, I, I, I felt that that just did not have enough teeth in it for me. Mm-hmm. So I deepened into Mexico and, you know, they're all about, I mean, they, they've got the heavenly realm. There's 13 heavens and nine hells, you know. And if you don't work them in this life, you're going to be working through the hells in the next one when you die, 
you know, it's like those Bardo states that Tibetans talk about, you know, but you can work them right now, presently. Mm-hmm. And as you do, when you get to the ninth hell, you've uh, liberated yourself from all these different dark energy traps. Then you can sit in coherence and at peace with yourself. But if you um, did that work before you died, it was part of your spiritual path, okay? You can move on and you can ascend the 13 heavens, you know? Mm. Uh, and they have other, other paths too. But uh, I liked it that uh, they have a shadow built in for thousands of years into their healing culture. Yeah. That appealed to me a lot. Yeah, I think it's so interesting that um, in your work with your friend Don Alberto, uh, who's very much heart centered, it's like uh, if you can just open the heart enough, it's gonna the light is gonna cast out the shadows or something. Very similar to the yoga tradition that uh, I, I learned within, very much heart centered. That that was the key is establishing yourself in the heart, and that's gonna kind of take care of all the immature, abused, uh, traumatized parts. Um, But like you, it felt at times almost like it could be too easy to to bypass all of that work because no matter how much I established Mm -hmm. myself in that, when I was stressed out, when I was tired, when my guard was down, there was still, you know, some things that come forward um, and, and still do. I mean, I told you, about uh, a trip that we took this weekend and we went uh, onto the mainland and up into the mountains to rescue a little dog and on the way up as we hit the summit of this mountain we hit uh, heavy rain and wind and dense fog and there's these giant trucks bearing down on our little honda (laughs) and i've got white knuckles on the steering wheel trying to keep us in a straight line as we uh hydroplane over these rivers of water and mm-hmm. my wife's there our our other dog is in the car and it's bringing up all of my fear um all of my stress and anxiety and in those moments i mean in those moments then this weekend i find uh oh i do i still have this kind of inner oppressor or inner authoritarian so when i'm in that state it's all I can do to kind of hang on to any semblance of uh, sanity and get us through this. And I found myself like shutting my wife down. You know, she was trying to ask like, how are you doing? Are you doing okay? And I'd be like, I'm doing fine. Just like, leave me alone. Don't talk to me. Let me get through this. You know, this like real kind of inner authoritarian would come out in those moments of like real stress. And, uh, you know, I could have in that moment just tried to open my heart or something, but I mean, this is just what was authentic. And I think for me, integrating that is acknowledging it. And then, you know, after the storm passes, talking to my wife about it, like what was going on with me, why I spoke so sharply, um, that kind of thing. And that feels like the best I can do right now. Like, I don't know if that tendency, uh, to, to try to gain control of a situation in that way, which I think is trying to cope with the fear of being out of control. Um, I don't know if that'll ever go away, but at least if I acknowledge it and um, talk about it and do that repair work with my wife afterwards, mm-hmm. that feels kind of healthy enough for now, at least, you know? Yeah, I think, I think uh, 
that's actually natural and normal what you're describing and what we have on the world's mystical traditions is a massive projection of the gold onto them. Mm. We over idealize them and what they can do. You know, uh, for Jung, this is why he appealed to me so much is uh, he saw this situation that uh, you have to hold the opposites together and there's a mighty tension between them. So in that scenario, you're trying to hold your spiritual integrity and wisdom together with how the energy of your body is managing and the emotions are managing the challenges of the situation you're in. So to judge yourself and say you're not spiritually evolved because you're in this tension for you would be to miss the point. There will never be a situation where you're not in tension or if you are, it's not natural, you know, because uh, we were uh, like Yang and Yin, we're between opposing forces and up cycles and down cycles and learning to navigate that and seeing what they are without judgment, mm. without blame, but being able to learn from mistakes, not judge them. And apologize if you've hurt anybody in your mistake, you know, and try to insight into, okay, what were the forces at work there that pulled me off center? Yeah. I got out of center over something this week. I forget what it was, but I told my partner, you know, I'm out of center, so watch out, you know, they'll get back in. I mean, yeah. that's what that's what our practices are for, is to get back awareness. Yeah. Well, awareness first, right? <clears throat> and then... Yeah, like what you said, uh, I do this all the time with my partner too. Because I have greater self-awareness now, I can give her like fair warning. It's like, you know, this is going on and just let you know, I'm going to do my best to manage it. But I'm also probably going to have a sharp edge to me uh, for the next little while or whatever, right? So like that fair warning and then the humility to to go back and apologize and to self-reflect. Um yeah, I don't know what uh, what judgment adds to that, you know? I think it just makes things worse. So, um, yeah. yeah, interesting about this, uh, you know, this idea we get in our head that someday I'll be, like, non-reactive. I'll never, anger will never come out of me again. I'll never speak sharply. It's just more people I talk to of your age and, like, listening to Jung and people like that, it just seems like that's just not realistic or healthy to even have right. hold that ideal, Right. I think it's, it's a, a projection. It's an idealization that's not fully accepting the nature of reality. You know, and the Buddha himself says, you know, it's all this impermanence and change, and it, it, it itself generates suffering. And that's just the nature of being, of existence, you know. And wisdom is recognizing that, you know. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's not how to be unaffected. It's how to be fully affected by what's going on. And yet hold on to your center, hold on to your consciousness, you know, and forge a middle way between the extremes because you can't be perfect. Okay. And you don't have to be totally taken over by the frustrations of the day. You can forge a middle path. And that's what you're doing when you tell your wife, Watch out. Fair warning here in case I'm off center. I might shoot at anything today. You know? That's a gift. A gift yeah. to give yourself and to give her. Yeah. And not judge yourself for it. Just recognize the truth. That is the truth. That's the authenticity. Yeah. You know, coming to that um, and finding people like Young and yourself um, who acknowledge that, that this is 
this is actually what's healthy is to feel it all and, you know, um, be in conscious communication with all parts of the self and with the people in your life and all that. That to me, like liberated me from that idealization that I'd gotten in both actually the yoga and the, in the kind of Western shamanic world that, you know, there's going to come a point where all your trauma is healed, where you're fully integrated. And it was usually um, the teacher at the top of the hierarchy who's collecting all the money for the trainings and everything. Who's the one setting that up for us, you know, as some kind of goal, um, some place to get to, and that they were the one that could help lead us toward that, you know, but even just mm-hmm. to put it out there that it was a possibility and I'm living proof of that, you know, mm-hmm. took me a long time to get over that. So I saw, you know, I, I studied Adi Da, you know, da Free John mm-hmm. and Osho very carefully. Uh, and I like their teachings a lot, but as I, I look at their behavior over time, uh, uh, both of us guys could be, uh, Temper tantrum, kind of high shirt tyrants, mm-hmm. you know, and young could too. You know, people that uh, were around young would say, you know, he had a belly laugh. It was wonderful. You know, if he was laughing with you, all was well, you know, but if he was irritated, watch out. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. So, and uh, then I think, okay, so who is it that I haven't seen carry the burden of these stresses? And I think of, um, Sri Ramna Maharshi, uh, but at the at the price of his body just uh, being wasted away, you know. So uh, there we don't have a strong embrace of earthly life. You know, mm-hmm. we have lini- living out of this transcendent eye. But uh, I don't think that's any kind of model for how to be fully human. You know. Yeah, I mean, uh, you live so, in a, you live in an ashram devoted to you. You have people waiting on you. You're not married. You don't have kids. Well, pretty good to be uh, stay chill throughout the day, right? Not a lot of stressors yeah, on yeah, you. Yeah, not a lot of things to yeah. cope with. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, totally unrealistic model. <laughs> uh-huh. So I think where we're at today is learning this and and learning to be the human that we are, foibles and all. And uh, the gold in the shadow begins with the first moment you can love some wounded part in you mm. instead, of, instead of hating it. Okay. And you can say hello to it. Tell me about yourself. As soon as you start practicing respect and radical self-acceptance, that's unconditional love. So then you're coming right into the source, into the center, and you don't have to wait for six years of Jungian analytic development to get in relationship to the self. You're already there by taking the very dirty, ugly thing it seems that you're working with and love it and help it uh, come into resonance and collaboration with you Mm. and start pulling the parts together and bringing your totality back online. Yeah. But of course there's, you know, your creative genius, your capacities, your gifts that you bring to the world, all that stuff is some of the gold in the shadow. A lot of times it'll never be manifested as long as the shadow is left unworked because it'll keep sabotaging that stuff. Mm. 
Yeah, when people talk about, um, it's another buzzword these days, is self-sabotage or the inner saboteur oh. who keeps blocking me from accumulating wealth or achieving fame and fortune. Um, do you think that's always what's going on there or are there other things? Um, you know, because so, sometimes I think like, well, maybe not all of us are meant to be you know, successful public figures, maybe our gifts lie elsewhere, maybe we're not in this lifetime meant to accumulate a lot of wealth. So maybe you're not sabotaging yourself, maybe this is just the path your life is taking. So how can we discern when we are, you know, when a part of us is sabotaging our dreams? Yeah, thank you for that question. And um, I love it. uh, Because uh, I've had to answer this for myself. And uh, I believe we all have a, a daimon or a creative genius or guardian spirit, whatever you want to call this, you know, Ishta Diva. It, it, if we uh, are in relationship with it, you know, it can help us clarify what we should be doing, you know. Uh, fame could be important for some type of gift you're bringing to the world. I think usually it's not. Usually fame is the ego just wanting to be loved by everybody, seen by everybody. It means they're not loving themselves. They're not enough for themselves. They have to have all that attention and accolade too. You know, when I started becoming known uh, in other countries uh, to my workshops, my teachings, uh, I found that overwhelming. Uh, And uh, I, I knew I didn't want fame. I didn't want that. You know, I, I want to have my meal in privacy on the street. I'm a very introverted, so I don't know how introverted like movie stars pull it off, but they do. But you never see them in the scandal sheets because they're <laughs> living very private lives, you know. Um, okay. Uh, so you, you need to ask uh, what are the gifts I'm bringing in this life and get clear on that. And how do I best do that? Now, I, you know, I wrote some books and uh, not a lot, but they're very dense and uh, juicy books. Uh, Quite a few articles and thousands of papers that will never see the light of day. Some will, but I asked myself, okay, why aren't I cranking out a lot of books like you know, John Dover here, something like that, you know, had dialogue with my guardian spirit, you know, and uh, this took place over months, this conversation around this, but uh, what I discovered is that my reading and my writing are a process, part of my contemplative process of digesting whatever energies I'm working with, and they kind of like a spade turning up the compost pile, you know, or telling the garden, uh, prepare me for teaching. What I am is a teacher and orator. I mean, that's just my nature to talk. I'm at my best when I'm in the flow. Actually, situations where you ask a question, but that that's it. Mm-hmm. But the reading and the writing and the occasional publishing are part of that process. But it's not my purpose to be some best-selling author. 
And once I realized that, I could let go of that part of me that wanted to judge it for, well, where, why isn't that materialized? Mm-hmm. It doesn't materialize because my guardian spirit doesn't want that. <laughs> it's not what it's about, you know. So I think finding out what does it want. Yeah. And then living in accord with that. Okay. Devil's advocate. Uh, a lot of popular life entrepreneurial coaches right now would say, ah, see, that's you sabotaging yourself again. This belief that, oh, well, it's it's not my true path to um, have a big following or to run successful online courses on Jungian shamanism, that kind of thing, right? So how how can you be sure that because, you know, what we're talking about is shadow stuff, stuff we can't see, how do you know for sure that uh, that's the truth? Uh, yeah, well, you know it. If you, if, if you know when you're living from your heart, if you can feel that authentic resonance, you know, okay? Also, uh, it's what I've had to do is push away fame. It's not never have it. Okay, I have 50 some thousand followers on my Facebook accounts alone, you know, uh, and 38,000 emails sitting in my box, most of which I just don't have time to open. So it's not that people don't know about me, but I could milk that for fame or money. I don't want to do that. I want to do exactly what I'm doing. And I know that. I know what my heart wants. And if you know that, it doesn't matter what these people say, there's so much new age ego-based marketing here's how to succeed and to be spiritual you should be making a lot of money and you can do it and i've got just a plan for you and by the way it's going to cost you ten thousand bucks to take my seminar Mm -hmm. or twelve thousand sometimes it's more you know oh yeah if you um get to the really famous coaches it's twenty thousand and up the promise being that you can have their level of financial uh, success and exposure and f- social media following and all that. And I think like, that's important too. Like that's something of the cultural shadow, isn't it? This kind of pressure to be more or to emulate the most famous yeah. in any yeah. field. Yeah. That's part of the disease of our time is that people are so desperate to feel valued or important or wealthy that they think what they want is out there and getting a lot of money or getting uh, fame will make them feel better. But the evidence is to the contrary. Mm. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I was going to ask about like practices to do shadow work and things like that, but I think you really um, touched on the core practice uh, just connecting to the heart, um, acceptance of all your parts, uh, holding them in your field of awareness with love and compassion. That to me is like where we all begin. And uh, yeah. any kind of ritual enactment um, can be helpful. And maybe we can talk about that some other time. But I really want to leave people with that. And also, I, I think it's really important that what came out at the end there about these expectations that we put on ourselves, really. It's not the society necessarily doing it, but we're doing that pressuring 
internally and, and where that's coming from and mm-hmm. um, using the heart to discern mm-hmm. your true path, which may not look anything like that famous coach's idea of what you should be doing with your life and, uh, and trusting mm-hmm. in that when you yeah. feel it. Yeah. I think that's, that's where we should end it. Are you good with right. that? Good enough. I, I'm good with that. I would just add relationship with the parts in your shadow. That's crucial. Yeah. Just like you have a relationship with your wife, you want to have a relationship with you, these different parts. Yeah. And so engaging the dialogue with those parts, asking, um, what are you afraid of? What do you need? Is there another way that we could find expression of this urge or desire and getting like creative? And, you know, I think I've started to think like shadow work, ooh, it sounds so heavy and dark, but often to me, it's, it's like a shadow play where I'm allowing these parts of myself to come out in the appropriate place and time. And man, that feels like really liberating. Yeah. I think what Dante and Blake or the Gilgashak epic, what they put into writing, you know, it's a mixture, you know, of glory and beauty and terror and horror and all that and how to navigate it. There's usually a message that comes out, you know, so that's one way to take, you know, the, difficulties of life and the chaos and the sort of thing and make art with it or some type of creative expression. Yeah. Mm. yeah beautiful. Well, thank you for this time. It's a, like I say, it allows me to fly a little bit because I'm a talker when I talk. <laughs> no, and that's great for me. I can just uh, <laughs> send you off with a little question or inquiry. Um, and I hope we can do this again on a bunch of other topics because uh, I find it really helpful. It's really affirming to me in a lot of different ways. And I know um, people have been responding really well to our first conversation. And so they want to hear more of this too. So there's something to it, this uh, connection that we have. Yeah, I enjoy it. Let's do it. Great. Well, until next time, take care. You too. Bye-bye. The Medicine Path is produced by Brian James on unceded Coast Salish territory, Vancouver Island, Canada. For more information, visit brianjames.ca. Music by Olive Artizoni, a.k.a. Greenhouse. Join the Medicine Path tribe and gain early access to episodes and the full podcast archives at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rain fall soft upon your fields. Until the next time we meet on the Medicine Path.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.